Chapter 10, verse 1. Now there was a man in Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. So Caesarea stood on the Mediterranean coast about 30 miles north of Joppa. Herod the Great renamed it in honor of Augustus Caesar and made it the providential capital of Judea, where Pilate lived until he was removed from power and built his magnificent harbor. It was the major Roman seaport of Israel and the most important center of Roman government and military activity. So Caesarea in this part of Syria, the entire western coast of the Mediterranean, was the most politically and economically powerful city of the Roman Empire along the coast. Um, when Herod the Great took over the city to honor Augustus, he named it after him, Caesarea, Caesar, but he built a harbor that is considered one of the wonders of the ancient world. It was phenomenal in size and the ships that it could bring in. And so it became a gemstone in the Roman Empire as far as bragging rights and beauty and, and practicality and power and immensity. This Roman soldier is stationed there as a very prominent leader. And so as a Roman centurion, he was most, which was a non-commissioned officer of the Roman army, each commanding, um, each Roman centurion commanded a hundred soldiers, thus centurion. A cohort contained 600 soldiers, and Cornelius's cohort had connections with Italy. Every reference to centurions in the New Testament is positive. Now this is significant, because every re reference to a Roman centurion is negative all the time among Jewish writings and the way that they view them. They are not only a Gentile, but they are the worst of Gentileness because they are soldiers who oppress and crucify and, and, and flog and enslave and constantly bring down the Roman boot on the Jews over and over and over again. They are everything that is wrong with the Gentile world. Yet, in the New Testament, every time they're mentioned, it's always positive. It's always positive. And the first and most prominent passage that we have of a Roman centurion is when Jesus, the centurion, comes to him and he expresses his faith in Jesus and wants to have a healing. And he doesn't actually physically come to Jesus. He just sends messengers. And Jesus commends this centurion, says, and all of Israel, I have never seen faith like this. Now that would have been a huge slap in the face of the Israelites. And Christ didn't mean it in a harsh, vindictive way. He meant it in a wake-up call to the apathy and the arrogance that they had developed and the way that they viewed themselves and the way that they viewed themselves in relation to the Gentiles. There's going to be very many similarities here between these two. This is going to be the first true conversion because we're talking about the worst of the worst of the Gentiles and a Jewish way of thinking. And he's going to convert, and we're going to actually see the entire family. And what we're going to see here is the Holy Spirit coming upon them in the very same way that we saw at Pentecost. He was a devout, God-fearing man, as was all of his household. And he did many acts of charity for the people and prayed to God regularly. So the first thing we're told is he was a God-fearer. And remember, we talked about this. A god fear is someone who is a Gentile who adopts the faith of Yahweh and decides that they want to commit their life to Yahweh. 
However, they have not gone full-blown into circumcision and following all the kosher laws. And if they did that, they would be called a proselyte. And so he is a follower, a God-fearer. We're told that his whole house is well, so they're unified in this. He has been very charitable to people, which is not a a Roman thing. Um, Charity doesn't exist among the Greeks. There's no such thing as charity among the Greeks. You're like, well, don't they help people? Yeah, but they help people like, and the elite of America help people. It's a, it's a to look good, but mostly it's a debt system. It's an honor-shame culture. Now, America doesn't live in an honor-shame culture, but the East does. And it's this idea that, yes, I will give to you, and you're in help and you're in need, a soup kitchen or whatever they might have back then, but you're now indebted to me. You owe me. It means that whenever I come into your presence, you will give me the highest and best seat that there is. It means that if I ever need your resources for anything, you're at my beck and call. And the more money I give you and the more I help you and the more favors I do to you, the more you're in my debt and the more I own you. And not in a slavery sense, but in a social shaming um, kind of a sense. Like, um, I will publicly shame you before everybody to let everybody know that I did this great thing for you. And then when I needed you, you wouldn't help me. And I don't even care if you're not capable of helping me because you are a nonprofit organization or whatever it was back then. You owe me. You're in my debt. And I will ruin you. And just one mere word, you did not do this for me, will literally cause the entire social structure to collapse upon these people and ruin them forever. They will serve this person out of fear because if they don't, their entire system will collapse, their, their role, their ability to do things. And that's the way the Romans view it. And so the fact that God is using the word charity here, the word that means unconditional, that I, I am giving to you regardless of whether you can do anything for me or not. And even if you never do, that's okay, I'll keep doing it. And that he continually does this, shows that he is completely rejected the indebted honor-shame culture of the Roman Empire. Well, I guess I can't say he's completely rejected on every single area because we don't know that, but at least in this area. And that's, that's significant, especially as someone that prominent. That one of the ways that you get that prominent and powerful is because you've worked the debt system, honor-shame culture, really well to your advantage. And he prayed to God regularly, which means he had a relationship with God. He was devoted. About three o'clock one afternoon, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God who came in and said to him, Cornelius, staring at him and becoming greatly afraid, Cornelius replied, What is it, Lord? The angel said to him, Your prayers and your acts of charity have gone up as a memorial before God. A lot of times you could offer this memorial kind of thing. as so you could offer money or charitable acts as a memorial to God, as an offering, as a way. And so this, this makes it clear that the fact that the angel is coming to him and saying that God is pleased with you, that he, that he wants to honor you, shows that Cornelius' motives for all this were pure. They were pure and they were genuine. And the fact that he, God is saying, I've accepted your memorial offering to me, is, it says something about the purity of his offerings. There's no question at all what the heart of Cornelius is after the narrator has described in such a way and the angel is now commending him 
in such a way. Now send men to Joppa and summon a man named Simon, who is called Peter. This man is staying at the, as a guest with a man named Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who had spoken to him departed, Cornelius called two of his personal servants and devout soldiers from among those who served him. And when he had explained everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. This is significant too that the angel is coming to him because Jesus made a promise. If you seek, you will find. And if you knock, it will be open to you. We often ask the question like, what about those people way out there who have never had like a person from America or something else come and share the gospel with them? And as much as it is important to send missionaries out to the world, the reality is God doesn't need us. We are to do it out of obedience. We're to do it because that's the way God prefers to work is through community and relationships and to join us in things. Remember, God doesn't need us ever, period. There's, there's no time in heaven that God's like, wow, I'm really bored. I, I need some people. I'm getting lonely. I need some more people to talk to. I kind of run out of my conversations with the angels. We need something different. Okay? There, there's no sense of need in any kind of way. There's no like, oh, how am I going to expand the Garden of Eden? Oh, I need humans. There's none of that. God created us not because he needed us, because he took pleasure in it, because he wanted um, and, and we know this. Um, in fact, just nowhere are we ever told why God loves us. And I think I've mentioned this before. The minute you say, why I love you, it cheapens the love, so to speak. I mean, yes, you can say, I appreciate you and I enjoy you because you're compassionate, because you've you're got a servant's heart, that kind of stuff. But a lot of those are like, I love you because you're beautiful. What happens when you get old and you're no longer or a car accident? I love you because we have sports in common. What happens if you get injured and you can't do that? I love you because you're compassionate. What if you become a vegetable or something like that in a car accident and you can't be compassionate anymore, right? This all cheapens it because there's a day that could come when none of that will be true of me. And as a parent, you know that really it's I love you because you're mine. Because you're mine. That's simply it. Cornelius in his heart has been seeking God out. And God will use whatever means is necessary. And right now, the vast majority of the people that are coming to Christ in the world are in China, Africa, and Muslim countries. There are more people coming to Christ in those three locations, specifically females too, than there is any other group in all of the world. And you know the primary way that they're coming to Christ? Through visions through visions of Christ. That Christ is literally appearing to these people in countries where there are no Christians because it's punishable by death. There are, there are literally 39 countries in the world where you will be killed for leaving the Muslim faith, let alone being a Christian. And there is no Bibles. And they, but in their heart, they have realized, I don't want this God. Oh, I don't want this institution of the Chinese atheistic government. I don't want these tribal gods of Africa. And, and God sees their heart and he's literally, literally Christ is coming to them in visions. And they're accepting Christ. And so even though God wants to use us and he takes great joy in, in, in us joining him, like my daughter joining me in building things and crafting things in the house, the reality is, I don't need my daughters, okay? 
the same thing as God doesn't need us. And that's when the atheists are like, well, what about da-da-da-da-da? And the answer is, if God is truly God, then there is no what about those people. God will go to them. And this is what he's doing with Cornelius. This is what he's doing with Cornelius. Now, he will still point Cornelius to a physical human being that, that can teach him and disciple him. But the other thing that's important is he needs to send him to Peter because Peter has to validate that the doors of the Gentiles have been kicked wide open by God. Peter is an unquestionable authority in the Christian church at this time. And the church that's going to struggle with this needs to see that Peter has seen and experienced this and is validating this. Verse 9, about noon the next day, while they were on their way and approaching the city, Peter went on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted to eat. But while they were preparing the meal, a trance came over him, or a vision. He saw heaven open, and an object, something like a large sheet descending, being let down to the earth by its four corners. In it were all kinds of four-footed animals and reptiles of the earth and wild birds. And then a voice said to him, Get up, and Peter, and slaughter and eat. The idea of slaughter here is an absolute banquet, banquet and smorgasbord. Okay, it's not just like grab like a, a, a turkey leg or something and, and eat it, or go to KFC and grab a chicken leg. It's the idea that all these animals are there, and you are to slaughter them all together. And the fact that they're all intermixed, there's no distinction of clean over here and unclean here. They're all intermixed. You're to slaughter them equally. You are to lay them out on the table and to eat them all equally. That is the idea here. But Peter said, certainly not, Lord, for I have never eaten anything defiled or richly unclean. The voice spoke to him again and a second time. What God has made clean, you must not consider richly unclean. This happened three times, and immediately the object was taken up into heaven. In order to understand what God is doing here, we have to understand what God is doing with clean and unclean animals and the First Testament. We can't understand why God is saying, okay, everything is okay now, and you can eat whatever you want, when the Mosaic Law clearly said that's not true. The question is, what is clean and unclean animals, and what was God doing with this? First, clean animals were animals that you were allowed to sacrifice and eat according to the Mosaic Law. Unclean animals were animals that you were not allowed to eat or sacrifice according to the law. This is laid out in Leviticus 11. And there were multiple categories of these animals. So one of the things that God did is he started with animals, like four-legged animals, and basically said that animals had split hooves or did not chew the cud, or eight dead animals were unclean. Okay, so they had a split hoof. They were unclean. You were allowed to eat them or sacrifice them. If they didn't chew the cud, they were unclean. You were allowed to eat them. And if they ate dead stuff, now obviously that makes sense. Like if death is a result of sin, then an animal eating dead carcasses, like a lion or something like that, that would be considered unclean for you to then eat it. The next category were birds. And God basically said, if they didn't walk on two legs and fly with their wings, then they were considered unclean. 
So even though Israel doesn't have penguins, penguins are unclean and that kind of stuff. They're, they're birds, but they have wings, but they can't fly, but they walk. So anything like that. Or if they're a vulture, a buzzard, or anything dead, carcasses, they're considered unclean. When it came to fish, he basically said they had to have fins and gills, and they were considered clean. If they didn't, like crayfish and lobsters and all that kind of stuff, they were considered unclean. And then when it came to what the Bible loves, calls the, the creepy, crawly things, that's literally how it's phrased all in Genesis when he creates everything all the way through the Bible. Every insect is pretty much unclean except for the grasshopper because it walks on two legs and it can jump and hop and fly. And the question is a lot of people ask like, okay, these are weird distinctions. Like, so some people have said, well, the clean animals are healthier, right? And they're, they're better for you, and so God. But the problem is there's animals on the list that are clean, but they're not really the healthiest animals. And there's some animals that are on the unclean list that are actually pretty healthy to eat. And, and some people are like, well, pigs make sense because they're unhealthy. They're bottom feeders. Well, actually, that's not completely true um, because it's not like we're dying a lot and having huge problems from eating pork. It's, um, but pigs are actually are very healthy in the sense of if you regulate what they eat, then you're eating that as well. And they have a really great liver for filtering a lot of things out. And so th there's a problem there. So, well, what other reason is there to keep you from eating food other than healthy things, right? And so this leaves a lot of people questioning. And this is important to understand that what God seems to be doing here is saying what is normal is okay, but what is abnormal is not okay. And when you think of a bird, when everybody thinks, when you're like, hey girls, little boys and girls, draw a picture of a bird. They draw flying winged things that walk around. It seems normal for animals to walk around on two legs. It seems normal for birds to fly. But it's not normal for birds to eat dead things. Most kids are not like, oh, I want a, a buzzard for my birthday. Can we have a buzzard? I want to eat it dead cats and just feed it, right? Like little girls aren't like, oh, let's hand the cat over to it and I'll let it eat it. Like that's, that's not something that kids like jump on, okay? And lizards were also considered unclean. Um, on a side note, I forgot to mention this, but also this is not an exhaustive list. And when God did this list, it only included the animals that were known to Israel. It did not deal with animals in Africa. It did not deal with animals in China and that kind of stuff. There's so many animals that don't fit into any of these categories. So it's very clear that God is giving this command for a limited time period to a certain region. And I'll come back to that. When you think of fish, right? Most people kind of like, when my girls were, there was this cartoon when they were growing up called, well, they're still kind of growing up, but when they were wee little kids, called Octonauts. And it was a cartoon where it was this, like, these octopuses and all these kind of stuff who went out and saved animals in the undersea and all that kind of stuff. And then and they would show, and of course, the lobster and the crabs were always, like, cute looking because they're cartoons. But at the very end of the show, uh, you will learn something about the animals and you will learn something about what was threatening the life of the animals in the ocean. But at the very end of the show, they would kind of give you a little bit more detailed, like National Geographic understanding of it. And then they would show the real pictures of it. And my girls were always like, oh, they got so cute. And then they would show the real picture of shrimp or the lobster. They're like, ew. Like, what? 
So, and they thought catfish were cute and they thought bluegill were cute, but like lobsters and that kind of stuff, nobody's like, oh, they're so cute, right? It's the same thing with all these animals, insects. Nobody's like, that's normal. I want them crawling all over me. And the people who do have them crawling all over them, like Jack Hanna, you think you're weird, right? <laughs> There's something wrong with you. And if you think of like, when in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, they don't have them like walking through the cave with a bunch of little kittens going around everywhere, right? They're, they're insects because that's way freakier and horrifying, okay? And so what God is establishing here is when we think of normal animals, we think of lambs and we think of dogs and we think of cats. Uh, we, do, we don't think of lions ripping things apart and feeding them. Like, have you ever seen a lion after it's got blood all over its face and like there's like muscles hanging out of his teeth and that kind of stuff. We don't think of all these other things as being normal. And this is what God was doing. Normalcy and wholeness was important to God. Being normal as the image of God without sin. Normal as the image of God, obeying God. Normal as the image of God, representing Him. That's what it means to be human. When we act in a sinful way, when we are rebellious, and when we worship idols, and when we murder and oppress and enslave and all these things, the Bible literally calls us beasts that rise up out of the sea. Chaos. He, he shows four images of the beast in Daniel 7 that represent the empires of that time period. And, and they're beasts. And in and, 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 Nebuchadnezzar, who is idolizing himself and doing all these horrible things, God literally turns him into a beast. Not, well, I guess I gotta rephrase that. He literally gives him the mind of a beast. And then he begins to act like it, to represent what he has truly become. And you're gonna see this in Revelation. The reason the Antichrist and all these things are called the beast is this is what humans become. They're, you are human when you're in connection to God. You are a beast when you're out of connection. And we've seen this. When, when people are in mob mentality and, and they go into the cities and burn and loot and destroy, it's like that's, that's more animal-like than it is image of God. And the other thing he values is wholeness. Complete whole health. Mental, spiritual, emotional, physical, social, spiritual. And this is what he seems to be emphasizing. And so I lifted this right out of my Leviticus commentary because I feel like I did a good job back then, so there's no reason to rewrite it. Normalcy and wholeness were based on... Sorry, let's back up. As Israel distinguished between clean and unclean animals, they were reminded that holiness was more than a matter of meat and drink, but also a way of life characterized by purity and integrity. Normalcy and wholeness were based on the requirements of the law. Living in accordance with the law made one different from the cultures that surrounded Israel. It made one holy. And holy means unique and unlike anything in creation. And only God is holy. Because only God is unique and unlike anything in creation. And therefore you and I cannot be holy in ourselves. Because we are like so many other things. There's nothing unique about us. Yet then God says in Leviticus 18, Be holy because I am holy. But we are able to be holy when we align ourselves with God, 
who is unique and unlike anything. And then when God indwells us and God uses us, He then uses us in a unique and different way. We are no longer being used to make more money, to gain more power, to fulfill our own pleasures. We're now being used as sacrificial agents in building the kingdom of God and investing in other people with no desire for anything in return as a result of that. And that is unique and unlike anything else in the world. And so we become holy by the way that we're being used by God, the way that we allow ourselves and our lives to be used in a way that is unlike the world. Thus, the immoral, self-serving cultures were not normal and clean. The, the food laws are going to be an analogy, a metaphor for the Gentiles. The Gentiles cannot be normal whole. The, the Gentiles are not connected to Yahweh. The, the Gentiles are not serving fully as the image of God in the way that God intended. The Gentiles act like animals in their paganism and their sexual morality and their, their disregard for life. The, the, the Gentiles are not normal. They're not whole. And they're not clean. So Israel was to remain separate from them in order to maintain their cleanliness and holiness because the care of animals and the sacrificial system were a huge part of their life. Not only would these distinctions between clean and unclean animals keep them from intermixing with the pagan nations who did not know the same distinctions, but they would be a constant reminder to the people that they were to remain distinct and why they were to remain distinct. Listen, animals are a huge part of their life in a way that's not ours. Most people worked with animals all day long. They, they, they were either keepers of livestock as shepherds or cattle or something like that, or they used animals to till the farms and work the land, or animals to transport goods from one place to another. Animals, they brought animals into their homes to heat their caves and homes at night because they didn't have HVAC systems. The animals were a huge part of life, and that was just working. Then, when you had your meals, if you did have meat, which wasn't very regular, but when you did have meat, there was a, that's a long process to slaughter a cow. Okay, If anybody's ever killed and slaughtered and cleaned a deer, it's a long process. And then the sacrificial system was all about animals. It was a long process to find the animal, to bring it, to slaughter it, to divide it up, to bring it back at a banquet. And so a big part of your life was just filled with animals. And if you're not allowed to have these certain animals, which the Gentiles do, it's going to exclude you from working with the Gentiles. You can't work with them. Because they work with these animals that you're not allowed to work with. And if you're not allowed to eat these animals that the Gentiles are allowed to eat, you can't eat, have meals with them, right? And where does fellowship most commonly happen? Meals. Even today, meals are a big part of fellowship, even more so in the ancient world. And so basically, it's going to exclude you from the Gentile life completely. Now, God didn't ever said that you couldn't hang out with the Gentiles in a talking to them, evangelizing to them kind of a sense, but you weren't allowed to hang out with them in a, hey, let's do life and hang out and exchange ideas. And so it was to remind them as they face animals in their work profession and they're sacrificing and they're eating their meals and they were no, you're not going to be invited to a Gentile party when they're like, well, they don't like pig. They're a fun killer. Okay, so, and it reminds you, you're to remain distinct and different. Because what they do is not normal. Because when they're working all day, they're working before the gods and the idols. When they're sacrificing, they're sexually involved with idols and other people as a worship to the gods. And when they're eating 
meat. They're eating meat sacrificed to gods and in the communion of demons and all that kind of stuff. And so it was to keep them separate. Now that's different, obviously, today because Gentile doesn't mean that necessarily anymore. Gentile doesn't automatically mean that you're a pagan who is worshiping these pagan gods in an immoral way. Gentile doesn't mean that you're automatically this immoral sexual person. In fact, there's we're Gentiles and we're all over the world. Okay, And so it was unique to that time period. God was not anti-foreigners. It's just that every foreigner was a pagan who worshipped other gods and really immoral practices. So you said stay away from them. But Israel was supposed to be so godly that it would attract the Gentiles to come to them. It would attract the Gentiles. So what you have in the First Testament is Israel was supposed to be so godly that they would create a, a utopian-like society on earth because God dwelt with them and they were obedient to God and, and their poverty would be lower and their, their, their unemployment would be lower and their, their war would be lower and their, their crime would be lower and they would be content and happy and they would know God. And the Gentile nation that's falling apart would look at them and say, because they would know them through trade. And they'd be like, I want to be a part of that. And everybody in the ancient world knew that whatever was true of you was because of your gods. And the first question in their mouth would be, who's your God? And it would be an opportunity to witness. And the Gentiles would leave their nations and come and join Israel. That was the way God intended. He wasn't anti-foreigner. He was just anti-living and dwelling and acting like them. But now with the Holy Spirit, we have God in us. And now we can go out into the world because we have the Holy Spirit in us. Now we have something that's continually making us clean, something that's continuously guiding us and talking to us and leading us, something that's continually convicting us and saying, no, don't go in that place and don't go in that place, something that can keep us separate. But even then we know, right, we still struggle with compromising and acting like it. And this is why the Bible constantly says, do not stop gathering together as believers. Be in the world, but not of the world. Constantly come back to the table of fellowship with God and discipleship and be reminded of who you are and encouraged to not go out as individuals. We used to send individuals out to foreign countries as missionaries. The church has now realized that's not a good idea for many, many different reasons and I'm not going to go into tonight. But one of them was it's hard to stay devoted to God when you're isolated in a pagan country like Papua New Guinea. And it also is very hard to not get depressed and suicidal when you're isolated in a completely foreign country all by yourself. This is why things have changed for us. So what God was doing was reminding them that they were to be distinct. These regulations taught Israel to act with discrimination according to Yahweh's standard of righteousness because they had been distinctly separated from the rest of humanity. They were separate not because Yahweh was overly strict, but because they do not function in a normal way according to other animals of their classification. Yahweh used this distinction between clean and unclean animals to teach Israel to remain distinct from the Gentiles. However, there were no formal laws that forbid you to talk to them, the Gentiles, to be hospitable towards them in any kind of a way. You just weren't allowed to intermix with them in their pagan way. Why is this important? Because now God is coming along and saying, this clean and unclean system is no longer true in the way that you've understood it. And to understand why God can change it and how he's changing it, you must understand what it was to begin with. God was not just merely saying, randomly these animals, randomly not these. It wasn't about health. It was about 
keeping them separate from the Gentiles. But what now God is saying to Peter is, I am making that which was unclean, clean. I can make the Gentiles clean through the coming of the Holy Spirit. And the Jew who is self-righteous and the Gentile who is pagan and immoral are really no different. That's the point that Paul is going to make in Romans 1 through 2. You, you, the Gentiles. He rallies against the Gentiles. And the Jews would be reading and be like, yeah. And then all of a sudden he's like, oh, and I haven't gotten to you yet, but you're next. And then he turns on them and talks about why they're just as far away from God and how much they need him too. And so what God is saying is, you're all technically unclean, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But you were just slightly more clean because I was dwelling with you in the Shekinah glory of God and you had the law and I chose you to be a witness to the world. But Kings and all those books showed you you didn't do that well. In fact, by the end of Kings, you became worse than the Canaanites. And by the time Christ came along, they were all hypocritical, legalistic people. Not every single person, but all in a metaphorical, hyperbolic kind of a sense. And now what God is saying is though, but with Christ, atonement on the cross, you're all cleansed. All sins are paid for. And with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, all can become clean. And it's not that God is changing the laws and saying, guess what? You can now hang out with things that are unclean. Because I don't care anymore. It's like an exasperated parent who's just like, okay, go hang out with them. I don't care anymore. I'm tired of fire them. That's not God. What God is saying is, you still only can dwell in fellowship with that is clean. But the Gentiles are going to be made clean. That's what God is saying. He's not changing the spirit of the law. He's not saying, well, I'm changing my mind on how the law works. Time for plan B. Oh, I'm tired of dealing with this. Time for plan B. He, he's changing the shape of the animal, so to speak, in a metaphorical sense. And so what he's communicating to Peter is, what is clean and unclean now? Faith, and not having faith. And that always has been true, but in the ancient world, it was clearly delineated by borders. The minute you left the Israelite border, you automatically were with pagan people who had no faith. But now, there is no chosen nation anymore. There's only the chosen people. And now the chosen people are called to go to Jerusalem, and Judea, and Samaria, and to the furthest parts of the earth, which means the people of faith are not going to be bound by borders according to the Mosaic and Abrahamic covenant of the promised land. But now they're going to be bound by the Spirit of God that is in them. And they can go everywhere. And so God is reforming the way he does clean and unclean in the way that he always wanted it to be. Strictly based on faith. Not geography. Not borders. And this is what he's communicating through his vision. He's not changing his mind on the law. He's not changing the law. He's changing us to fit the law. This is why Christ came. Now, we as Gentiles can be clean without leaving our nations and going to Israel and getting physically circumcised and following in the kosher things. We can simply be saved wherever we are because the Holy Spirit is not confined. The Holy Spirit is not confined to a geography or a territory. 
And so this is what he's communicating to Peter. And this is what Peter's going to get when he begins to see it with his own eyes. Peter sees his vision now. And the point is, and once again, I'm going to just reiterate this, not that God is saying it's okay to eat unclean things now, but God is now saying that clean and unclean is not distinguished by the outward appearance anymore, by the customs anymore, because I'm going to make things that are unclean now clean. So Peter probably is like, oh my gosh, this is mind-blowing. <laughs> just when you thought that you were done with all your paradigm shifts with Jesus, like, wait a minute, this human is also God? Like, that's a huge mind-blowing paradigm shift. And then now this human leaves you and brings you the Holy Spirit. What? There's not just one God, there's the Trinity. Like, just when Peter probably thinks, I figured out all the paradigm, mind-shifting, mind-blowing kind of a things. God's like, yep, got another one for you. 